Just a few weeks ago, states ended lockdowns and started to reopen their economies. And now we're seeing how those reopenings have changed the course of the coronavirus. Record spikes in recent days, including Arkansas, Texas, Florida, and Arizona, seeing a big spike in cases. Georgia, North Carolina, and more are seeing a surge of coronavirus cases. And you can add South Carolina to the list of states setting records over the weekend. Cases of COVID are on the rise again in 22 states. And in those states, officials are grappling with how to balance the public health risk with people's desire to get back to their jobs, see their families, and resume normal life. These states are making very different choices. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Tuesday, June 16th. Coming up on the show, two top health officials from two states talk about how they're each tackling new outbreaks as their economies reopen. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. When the state of Oregon issued a lockdown in March, there were relatively few cases of COVID. But that didn't make Patrick Allen, the director of the Oregon Health Authority, any more confident things would stay that way when they started opening up again. How did you feel when reopening started? Pretty nervous. (laughs) So we began reopening on May 15th. The first couple of weeks, I think you're just sitting there waiting to see if anything is going to happen. And really, that first round of reopening was pretty uneventful. Oregon's reopening plan was designed county by county, and the most rural counties reopened first. Since the initial round of reopening had gone well, most counties got the go-ahead to start the next phase of reopening. It's after that that Patrick says he started to see problems. Starting on the 5th of June, we started seeing case numbers that were either very high or actually some record numbers of cases. The 5th and 6th, I think we had something like 96, 97 cases each day. We ended up with a very large number of cases, about 140 on the 7th. The virus was on the rise again in Oregon. And Patrick and other state officials decided to do something unusual, rethink the reopening strategy. We went to the governor and said, we think it's important to pause for a period of time to give us more ability to look at this data and see what we think is happening, and that that's more prudent than a further reopening of the state right at that point. Last week, Governor Kate Brown granted Patrick's request. In order to slow the transmission of the virus, I am putting all, all pending county reopening applications on hold for seven days. This is essentially a statewide yellow light. When you decided to pause your reopening plans, did you get a lot of pushback? 
You know, I think most of the pushback was the timing. The announcement didn't come out until Thursday evening. The Multnomah County, where Portland is, was going to open last Friday. There were a couple of other counties where Salem, the state capital is, and elsewhere expected that they were going to open. And it was of the variety of, I totally get it. I just wish you'd have said it two days earlier so I wouldn't have gone out and bought food or, you know, whatever kinds of things different sorts of businesses did. The timing wasn't good for businesses, but it gave Patrick time to figure out why cases were rising again. And what have you been seeing, looking at the data and analyzing it? Yeah, so it's even still today a little bit too early to tell, but specific confined outbreaks are a pretty big piece of what's happening. Reopening coincided with kind of the peak of agricultural field work and food processing. But cases weren't only popping up in these kinds of work settings. You know, it looks like Memorial Day weekend was as big a trigger of subsequent cases as anything. That's not so much people going to the beach. The beach in Oregon is not super user-friendly anyway. I think it's backyard barbecues and birthday parties and weddings and those kinds of things. Those things that we now think are part of what's driving our case number are not, you know, big public events or sports events at stadiums or those kinds of things. They're in people's backyard. And so there is a little bit of supposition on our part that those kinds of gatherings are part of what's driving things. And, you know, also candidly, uh, we've had pretty significant protests, not just in Portland, but all across the state. And trying to get a better sense of whether those are driving significant numbers of cases has been part of it as well. Have you seen any indications that those protests have driven more infections? So local public health throughout the state has been asked to ask people, were you involved in a protest? And while there's certainly reluctance to answer that question, Multnomah County has reported fewer than five cases. So, you know, I think probably the best answer would be it may be contributing to some cases, but it does not appear so far to be a major driver of case numbers. But it may also just be too early to tell you It's these unknowns that make it so hard for Oregon to know how to contain these outbreaks that are cropping up. The challenge in all of this is you get cases for different reasons. And we had a very large outbreak at a seafood processing plant on the Oregon coast. And cases like that, in some respects, they're very concerning, but they're less concerning about overall reopening of the state than cases that are just popping up for no reason at all around the community. And so if I get a workplace outbreak, the case interviewing that needs to occur is rather more straightforward because you know who works there. And you know that a chunk of their day is spent there and there are more contacts with household members and those kinds of things. But that's relatively straightforward. A family gathering, the circles can widen pretty quickly. It really does come down to being able to identify people and getting them to quarantine or isolate. To identify who's at risk, Oregon hired contact tracers, people whose job is to find everyone who came into contact with an infected person and ask those people to isolate. Oregon assigned a certain number of contact tracers to every county based on population. But Patrick says it's not that simple. Because having a few contact tracers in every county doesn't mean you're ready for a big outbreak in one place. We are learning through these larger outbreaks that probably what we need to have more of is sort of a flexible resource for contact tracing that we can move around the state to basically chase big outbreaks. The county where the seafood processing plant was had all the contact tracers we and they thought that they needed to have given their caseload. And then they ended with 170 cases out of kind of nowhere and it overwhelmed everything. Is that an indication that contact tracing isn't where it needs to be? 
No, I think it's the the nature of the problem is maybe a little different than we might have expected. The analogy I've used is we sort of set up a system where the water would evenly rise all over the place as opposed to a problem popping up here and then a problem popping up over there and needing to kind of go chase after that problem. It's hard to chase after that problem, though, when the state is relying on individual people to make the right decision. What would you say to someone who's been feeling cooped up and wants to get together with friends and family and regain a sense of normalcy and learned that they can't do that? Yeah, I mean, this has been the messaging throughout. You know, this is really hard. It's hard for people socially and emotionally. It's hard from a mental health standpoint. It's obviously hard economically. And the challenge is it it is working. And we want to do this right because the last thing we want to do is, far from pause, have to roll things back. And we think taking our time and doing this step by step and carefully will keep us from having to do that. I know it's hard, but you'll be patient a little while longer and we're going to get there, but we want to get there carefully. What in your messaging needs to change? You know, we had an ad campaign that got some notoriety that was basically, don't accidentally kill your teachers, stay home. Well, that's pretty binary, right? Stay home, save lives. Now it's got to be more nuanced, but it's really how do we still make it kind of bite-sized so that people can really understand what it is we're saying. I've been trying to say four simple rules. Smaller is better than bigger. Farther apart is better than closer. Outside is better than inside. And mask is better than no mask. Is this a moment for government action or individual action? Oh, I think this is a moment for individual action for sure. Shutting everything down, we now know, is pretty effective at interrupting the transmission of disease. But you can't stay there forever. And you can't stay there very long, really. And so for reopening to work, all the other things we've been talking about since the very beginning become not only good things to do, but our primary line of defense. Stay home if you have symptoms. Cover your cough. Don't touch your face. Wash your hands. Stay six feet apart. Don't gather in large groups. Wear a mask. Yeah, you're going to be able to go out to restaurants or theaters or those kinds of things as we go, but not in the same way. We've still got to do all those other things to continue to do what we can to minimize the spread of the coronavirus. Are there any indications that you will have to extend the pause? We're in the middle of those conversations and data analysis right now and and are working closely with the governor's office, and uh, she'll make the final call on that. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. I think that was a five o'clock alarm on your computer. (laughs) Or two (laughs) o'clock as the case may be, but... Oh, two o'clock, yes. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Happy to do it. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash journal terms and conditions apply this episode is brought to you by workday get the whole band together with workday and pair finance and hr on one platform for an epic performance With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever. And you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. 
Visit Workday.com to learn more. Welcome back. Most states that are reopening, even if they're seeing a spike in new cases, haven't hit pause like Oregon has. One state staying the course on reopening is Alabama. So today we called the state's top health officer, Scott Harris. My uh, background is I'm a physician who specializes in adult infectious diseases. I spent about 20 years in private practice here in Alabama doing HIV work and in general infectious diseases. In Alabama, new cases of coronavirus are rising fast. Infections are at the highest level they've ever been, with hundreds of new cases reported every day. Alabama first issued a lockdown order in early April after Scott saw models that predicted a surge of COVID cases. I don't recall exactly what our case numbers were at that time, but they seemed relatively insignificant compared to where we are now. At that time, we were really guided more by the fact that we had these national models that were predicting the sort of catastrophic surge in hospitalizations and ICU bed shortages and ventilator shortages. And so in trying to respond to the concerns of our hospitals and, of course, just the concerns of the general public, the shelter-in-place order was issued. And really, I think overall, we felt like it was effective. And at the time, was there any pushback to putting in place a shelter-in-place order when you weren't facing a surge? Yeah, there was tremendous pushback, you know, particularly from businesses, particularly close contact professions, but also, you know, certain retailers. When we went to a list of essential versus non-essential retailers, obviously that's a system that just immediately creates winners and losers in a sense. And so there was a tremendous amount of pushback there. I think overall we felt like we had very good public buy-in. By and large, people understood the risk. But over time, that opposition continued to grow, particularly as the case numbers never materialized. With COVID cases staying low, Alabama decided to start opening businesses again at the start of May. How did you, as the state's health officer, feel? Were you nervous? Yeah, I, I think we were certainly concerned that as more people got out and about, we were going to see more disease. And certainly we have significant numbers of folks in our state who simply have to get out and work and do things and don't have the luxury to telework or to sit at home. And so we knew that we were likely to see increases in case numbers and, and in fact, we have. In the weeks since then, Alabama's COVID cases started rising. First slowly, and now faster. Do you feel like the outbreak in Alabama is out of control? I'm not sure how to define out of control, but we, we're very uncomfortable with what we're seeing. You know, it's not that way in every part of our state, but certainly here in the city of Montgomery, our state capital, we have much more disease than we would like. We have had a Memorial Day weekend that we were very concerned about. We've subsequently had people protesting. We certainly respect their right and, and even responsibility to do that. And yet we're concerned about the public health aspect of that. We have a July 4th holiday coming up soon. We're extremely concerned about that. So I think, you know, here in our city where our hospitals are really straining on ICU beds, we do feel like this is accelerating in a way that it can't continue. Right. So you now have increasing case numbers. You've had your first day with over a thousand new cases. How does it make you feel about ending your lockdown 
I wish we had the luxury of being able to go longer. Unfortunately, it just in the overall picture of things didn't seem to be an option for us at that time. We've had this tremendous swing where we've had three or four moderate-sized cities sort of really getting overwhelmed. And then we have some small rural counties where people don't know anyone who's been affected. And so it has really been challenging to try to construct a consistent message that applies to both of those situations. And, you know, the longer the lockdown goes, the less disease we would have had. And so now what are you doing to contain the virus as it's spreading? Really, our strategy now is to reach out to the local officials and make sure that it's very clear what's going on in their communities with the data that we have. We have gotten a lot better at compiling and arranging and being able to disseminate data. And I think we'll have a lot better success trying to get people to do things on a local and regional basis than trying to issue orders statewide. But beyond that, we want local officials to understand what the disease transmission is like in their area and then to react appropriately. I would say we certainly understand that not every official probably is going to be willing to do that. To be honest, they weren't willing to do that even when our statewide health orders were in place as well. So by communicating, this is what's happening in your community, this is what your hospital is seeing, this is what's occurring in your nursing homes, I think we have a better chance at the local level of getting buy-in and support and generating some political will to do what needs to be done. Scott says that communicating what's important is especially hard with one of Alabama's historically underserved communities. You know, in Alabama, we have trouble sometimes reaching and communicating with rural communities, the area that's called Alabama's Black Belt, which was you know, originally named for the black soil there, but now contains a lot of poor African-American communities. I think we have recognized for a long time that state government has not done a terrific job of reaching those communities, of investing in their infrastructure and education and health care. And so trying to get a message to them about anything is something we're not very good at. And so we worked with our local politicians. We worked with churches. We work with some civic organizations in those parts of the state to try to get the message out. But even as the state struggles to get the message out, Governor Kay Ivey hasn't changed her reopening plans. Scott says that's because she has to weigh more factors than public health. She has to consider the state's economy, and she can only do as much as her residents are willing to tolerate. Ultimately, we have to have the consent of the governed. Really, the only thing worse than not issuing these health orders is to issue health orders that people deliberately flaunt and are unwilling to follow. And we had reached a situation where we had certain county sheriffs who had announced they were unwilling to continue enforcing health orders. We did have some businesses that were opening up in defiance of the health orders, and all of those factors the governor had to consider. You sound like you're in a really tough spot as the state's public health official who knows the most effective public health actions to be taken, but is operating within a community that has rejected them? Well, I think that in many ways, that's a really accurate characterization. It's not a lot different from my career as a physician. You know, I spent a couple of decades in private practice as a doctor, and you always have patients who don't take your advice and want to tell you how they know better because of something their friend told them or something they read on the internet. (laughs) And that's just part of your normal life when you're caring for patients. You have patients who get angry with you because you call them out on their behavior and you want them to do better. 
and in a sense, this is no different. I mean, for public health, you know, our patient is the state of Alabama, and our patient doesn't always agree with the advice that we're giving them. We feel like we are, have the training and expertise and understanding of the data to give them the best possible advice. We just don't always know how to make them take that advice, and so we're trying to think of all the strategies we can. And, you know, it just really causes me to shake my head. I think people just don't understand or are just so desperate to return to some sense of normalcy that they were in denial or willing to overlook what's going on. And clearly there's some people who just don't perceive risk in our more rural areas where they really haven't seen a lot of disease, where they maybe don't even have a hospital that's been under duress because they don't have a hospital. Those folks feel like this is just some distant story on television that they're not really that interested in. Thank you so much for your time today. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, it was a pleasure to speak with you. That's all for today, Tuesday, June 16th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. If you like our show, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We're out every weekday afternoon. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.